This is the Parkinson's Fight Club, a podcast dedicated to empowering and inspiring those living with Parkinson's disease. I'm your host, Jamie Bryson. Hey, everybody. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm so excited about today's episode. You guys are going to love this. Um, I was able to get my doctor to uh, agree to come on and spend some time with us. And this discussion is really good. Uh, I don't know that there's any discussion like this out there right now uh, that's as specific to kind of the Fight Club uh, ethos, uh, if you will, that um, that we have just in terms of uh, fighting this disease and and how to fight it well, and and especially if you're a young onset person. So, um, Dr. Sabica is a professor of neurology and ep- epidemiology at the Mayo Clinic. Um, he has expertise in both movement disorders and behavioral neurology, and extensive experience as a clinical researcher examining epidemiology studies, risk factors, biomarkers, and environmental agents, um, and associated with uh, neurodegenerative diseases. Um, in his clinical practice, uh, Dr. Savica leads the early onset Parkinson's disease clinic at the Mayo Clinic and is the chair of the task force on early onset Parkinson's disease of the International Movement Disorder Society and section head of the neuroepidemiology at the American Academy of Neurology. So he, he Dr. Savica primarily sees individuals with uh, young onset Parkinson's at the Mayo Clinic, and that's where I saw him. And uh, as you've heard in previous episodes, um, you know, he's an awesome doctor. The Mayo Clinic is an awesome place. So I'm really excited to bring you guys this uh, content, and I hope you really enjoy it. And without further ado, um, check out this really awesome discussion. so excited to have Dr. Sabica with us today on the podcast. Um, thank you so much for graciously agreeing to be with us today, Dr. Sabica. I know you're a busy guy. Um, so It is my pleasure. Thanks I for pre- the invitation. For I appreciate that. And uh, full disclosure, Dr. Sabica is my doctor. HIPAA doesn't have to worry about that because I'm, you know, I'm fine with disclosing that. So uh, but Dr. Sabica, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I am Orlorfo Savica. I am one of the consultant, well, staff at the Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Um, I'm a neurologist. I specialize in movement disorder and behavioral neurologist. As you all know, uh, Parkinson's disease, for the most part, and especially um, young slash early onset Parkinson's disease. Um, and uh, I have a beautiful wife and a fantastic daughter. That awesome. Was the most thing, the most important things in life yes you're you're a person that has a whole life outside of this work that you do huh well we really appreciate the work that you do uh tell us a little bit about how you got into being uh specializing in young onset or early onset parkinson's no that's a very interesting question because uh, everything started as usual with patient seeing you see patients you realize Mm -hmm. what are the problems you try to understand the patient, you try to understand their needs. And that was a few years ago when I was seeing a patient, a local patient, uh, somebody that uh, was seen before by other colleagues, and we were talking about his diagnosis that was indeed uh, young onset Parkinson. And uh, after talking a few times, um, it was appear, appear clear to, uh, to me, and I was told by them, that there was uh, no resources, there was nothing that they could find online uh, or anywhere, online but anywhere. Um, Even in an institution like mine that is in the forefront of research and medicine like the Mayo Clinic, uh, devoted specifically to a young onset Parkinson's disease, knowing that clearly the challenges that he was facing, uh, that they were facing as a family, that they were facing at work and as career choices and everything else were completely different than what I was seeing and what we know existed in late onset Parkinson's patients. Right. With all of due respect, it's completely different. Right. Therefore, um, I start to dig a little into that, uh, more into that, and I realized and I noticed it was like one of these eureka moments. Say, oh my God, but for real, there's nothing out there for this important and young group of patients. 
So I start to get more into the advocacy. I start to more get into the research. And uh, little by little, in a short term, I identify a number of pitfalls and a number of uh, gaps that were in the field. Yeah. And as you know very well, uh, the, the biggest gaps was how to call that uh, condition, the biggest yeah. gap how to define the age of the condition, even in the literature. And I found it bizarre that in, in 2000 and uh, something, 2000 and, you know, first decade, second decade of the 2000s, we were still uh, struggling with not having a clear definition and a clear, um, a different approach, a clear different approach for this group of patients. So everything started with the patients, Therefore, with one patient, and then this prom- prompt me to be more and more involved and prompt me to study and to switch slightly, switch from the initial target of my research that were mostly based on, on synucleinopathies, so Parkinson and Manchurlui bodies. Mm-hmm. Knowing the difficulties of doing this research, we moved, I moved more into still synucleinopathies, but not necessarily so synucleinopathies working mostly with, on younger individuals. That's basically the story on what prompted me there. Okay, so you've been doing that for a while, and I know you have some ideas about the differences between young-onset Parkinson's and late-onset Parkinson's. So what would you say would be the main differences between them that you've well, re- realized? That's that's a great question. Well, the main difference, forget about the biology, forget about the pathophysiology, forget about the underlying mechanism leading to a disease. The main difference is that a brain of somebody that has young-onset Parkinson's early onset Parkinson does not have stigma of aging. Right. It means that is a brain that does not have the accumulation, the damage caused by a number of proteins that we know are getting in our brain as we all as we get older. Mm-hmm. As well doesn't have the same amount of vascular damage that uh, we we all have as human as we get older. Yeah. So it's a brain that is much more, um, let me pass the term, clean. Yeah. Um, as a brain, brain that is less frail. Because clearly, if uh, me and you are 85 and we start to have uh, uh, Parkinson disease, our brain is an 85 year old brain to start right. with. Uh, however, we can argue that disease started earlier, but still. The symptoms arise when you're 85. It's different when you're in your 20s and your 30s. We cannot argue, nobody can say that the aging process is already started because it's not. Because it simply right. is not. That's the biggest and maybe yet the most relevant differences that we need to be understand. The other difference I would say is that we tend to use the term Parkinson's disease to indicate a group of symptoms and signs characterized and caused by lack of one chemical, which is dopamine, in right. some specific areas of the brain when there's the largest amount. But uh, we are trying to, in a very simplistic way, to put everything in one bucket. We all know and Everybody that listens to us knows that, you know, it's very difficult to find two patients with Parkinson's disease that are similar to each other, exactly right. the same. Everybody's different. Everybody's yep. different because of the life experience, life environment, uh, genetic background. Um, everything counts in this moment. And everything uh, causes the manifestation of disease to be different person to person. Therefore, we still use the term Parkinson's disease, but in reality, we are identifying a number of diseases, a number of mechanisms that are leading to a dysfunction, a damage sometimes, of some group of cells. Uh, and we still have to use the word Parkinson's disease because it's easier uh, for reimbursement and everything else. But on the other hand, we are identifying a number of conditions within 
the name Parkinson's disease. This is incredibly more evident in young onset patient compared to late onset patient with Parkinson. So this is another big difference that we see between young and old or early and late. Yeah. So um, in terms of treatment of the difference between how you may treat a person with late onset and young onset, what would you say the differences are there? Well, um, typically, um, historically, um, classically, what we have studied, what we were teaching the younger generation of physicians and um, neurologists and so forth, we were always incredibly careful to start medications on younger individuals. We wanted to say, oh, we have to make sure that you don't have complication of the, of the treatment mm-hmm. or complication of the disease. Right. I'm referring to the dyskinesias, I'm referring yeah. to the fluctuation of response and so forth. And that was something right to say maybe 20, 30 years ago when we didn't know very much about things. But now yeah. the data are not supporting this particular idea. Late onset patient, usually when we see the typical findings, clinical findings of Parkinson's disease, tremor, rigidity, stiffness, falls, and so forth, we can easily, doing a trial, and everybody doing a trial with the medication, the levodopa, the cinemat, right away, and see how you respond. If you respond well, if you take the medication one hour before meals, done correctly, you respond well, the right dose, people are going to be responding doing fine. In young onset patient, historically, again, as mentioned before, we didn't want to do that because there was the concern of the fluctuations. And that was wrong because the data do not support that. The data support that uh, um, people with early onset Parkinson's disease, young onset Parkinson's disease, may have dyskinesia slightly more than what late onset patients have, but slightly more, not okay. that much more. And also there's there are some genetic um, mutations that put some patients with young onset Parkinson at a higher risk of dyskinesia. Okay. And these seem to be the driver of what was observed in the past. But now we know about this mutation. We know that clearly in this group of patients we should not be that aggressive. But otherwise, if some of my patients come to me unable to move, stiff, mentally, physically slow, I need to make sure that they take the right amount of meds. And it doesn't matter to me uh, what would happen in the future. Not because it doesn't matter, because I know that likely I would be able to control the future somehow, making adjustments. Also, you are not we are not talking about with somebody 85 or 75 uh, when right. you don't have, uh, you're not working or you're retired and you can take naps through the day and so forth. <laughs> you don't. We, I usually use the analogy, and I know I did it to you as well, like diabetes, right? If diabetes type 1, I had to give insulin. Right. And we know there is a threshold of the insulin that works for you. But we know that if there are some days, maybe you're working out too much or too little, or maybe whatever are your requirements, then you need an extra amount of insulin. Yeah. This is exactly what we had to do in young onset Parkinson. That's different than what we do in late onset Parkinson. It's not written anywhere that you have to take the same amount of medication every day. Usually, wow. you find the threshold that works for you, mm-hmm. whatever it is. It can be one tablet. It can be three tablets. It can be one tablet five times per day or three tablets once a day. That's something that you have to work with your physician to find the right one. Once we know this is the threshold that works for you, Let's say you have a wedding <laughs> or yeah. you have a particular demanding uh, day or, as in your case, you try your, try, your, your training for, um, for uh, a very demanding <laughs> physical, exer- physical uh, task, right. then you need to take more medication. Yeah. That's an important thing, and that's something that uh, we don't do as much in late onset Parkinson because we don't have this kind of... request and requirement from the body. Yeah. I mean, it surprises me how many people I come across through, um, you know, 
getting to know them online or even some people I know who I've met in person who their doctor is not giving them very much levodopa because they're afraid to give them too much. And so their quality of life is not that great. And it's like, you know, I had one guy who actually ended up coming to see you um, who was like, he lost his job and, you know, he had a tremor going really bad. He's like, how am I going to interview for a job like this? And I was like, this is crazy. Like you're not being treated, you know? So do you think that the the main reason why people are not treated uh, adequately is just because of this stigma that exists from a long time ago or? Well, it's because of the stigma is because of the data that uh, were existed some time ago and the opinion of the leader of the field or some time ago that we have to change. We are changing, are gone, are changed. But if I change an opinion today in whatever in whatever field of science or field of society, it will take me it will take time. To yeah, that's make a change in, in in the mentality of my colleagues and in the young uh, in the young physicians so what we do today we would uh, was that we will be able to 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 to, to see a, an effect in a few years yet uh, we are facing a situation when our patients are seeing uh, colleagues that are super very clever very well educated so I'm not blaming on anybody right right but right. I'm just saying that that's a different way we are. We were thinking about this condition, that the current data. So remember, and you know that everything I say is supported by data. Right. I don't base that on personal opinion. I base that on data that support what I say. Yes. The current data are not supporting that we need to be saving the levodopa for later. We need. We need to. We need. We don't need to be saving our good times for later because there is right. no for data support. Yeah. Uh, we are not saving anything. Uh, things are going to progress and again in a different way for anybody. For anybody's different so it's not the same for anybody. Right. But uh, but uh, we I need to help you now. Not yeah. in in the now so in today in tomorrow morning not necessarily in 10 years, because in 10 years, I don't know what would happen to any of us. Right. That's yeah, exactly. And the other thing that I love about what you just said is that maybe I hope that the patients hear that you don't have to tolerate off times. Right. Okay. Like I, I come across so many people who just complain and they say, oh, man, I have off times and it's so terrible. And I'm like, just take more medication. <laughs> yeah. Well, or, or adjust the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it means that. If there's off times, means that medication is working, first of all, because you have an on time, so it's right. working. Yes. Even if you have dyskinesia, means that medication is working, right? Too yep. much. Mm-hmm. But if you have on and off time, means that uh, it has to be adjusted and and to make sure that the off times are limited to to nothing, to zero if possible, or to not enough to bother. And don't get me wrong. The challenge that is posed by young onset patients is also that sometimes if uh, the disease is different, there's no aging, the mechanisms are multiple, sometimes the response that you receive and you're expecting and you're observing the patient is not what you're expecting. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you have to be creative at times in the sense that you have to understand the biology behind that to try to modify the way the medication and the medications sometimes are used without having the same uh, kind of medication or kind of uh, cocktail or drugs that you would use in late onset patients. So that's an important thing. Yeah. Um, that sometimes to minimize off times, we had to do, we had to go to a different route, things that we maybe we were not going in late onset patients. And I'll say, you know, for, from the patient side of it, it's hard it's work, you know, it's, it's trial and error. And, um, you know, you've been awesome to work with. I hope everybody has a doctor that's easy to work with, but you know, you, I say to you, Hey, um, you know, my medication's wearing off every day at a certain time and what can we do different? And we sort of experiment and, you know, sometimes it's, the experiment's really hard and it doesn't work out well. And sometimes it works out well. So if you're willing to put in the work, you know, and you have a good partner, uh, with your doctor, then, um, I think you can really, have a pretty reasonable existence for most for most of the time. 
Agree, agree, and you have to really partner and you have to work together. As you say very well, you're accepting the fact that it's not an exact science yet. Right. Uh, in, in the future, it will be a little bit different. In the future, I, you know, if I think about my medical school, when I was in medical school in the 90s, and uh, um, the idea of diabetes, again, use diabetes because it's a very common disease. Yeah. Um, you had to dose insulin according to what you were best guessing what was going on. Nowadays, you have a sensor that tells you how much you need. Mm -hmm. yep. So with dopamine, we cannot do the same, same yet. And you know, there's the, the fanny pack with the pump and whatever. Right. But that was the, what happened to diabetes was not, was not that long ago. So I'm thinking something similar, a way to tell objectively how much dopamine you need and how to best transport it to the brain that's another aspect yeah um, it's something that can happen that should happen and i think it will happen uh, in our lifetime in wow. our lifetime not necessarily and in, in, in a relatively short time that's amazing i mean yeah because i feel like a lot of it's just guessing right like i have and the base i have the baseline medication that you know that we do and then every now and then, for, for whatever reason, you know, I have a I have a day where it's just, you know, I need work. You know, need a, need a little bit more, and so it would be really cool to have an objective uh, level of, of some sort. And, you know, and the father doesn't work can be for too many reasons. I mean, it can be because you're off with food. Uh, also, the food is having a major aspect. Yes. The part. And when I say food, I really mean food, not just protein. Protein is very reduction is a very reductionistic approach. There's beyond protein, has to do with absorption, food intake, amino acid transportation. We have so many variables that we need to be considering every single time we are you are taking the medication. But that's an important thing. Uh, yeah. I hope that in the future, and so now, as I I hope because it's the best way. But in the future. I am pretty sure we will have something very much similar to what That's we great. have in, uh, in diabetes because it makes sense. It mm -hmm. tells you, hey, your dopamine level are down. Take, I don't know, a quarter more of uh, the injectable, I'm just saying, the right. injectable medication or the inhaler or the pill. Depends on the way you absorb it and when in the day you're absorbing. That's an important point. Yeah. So um, you touched a little bit just now on food. Is I want to go ahead and ask you, is there a particular diet that you think works better for part people with Parkinson's or is it still kind of... This is a great point. You know, you hear a lot these days about gluten-free, vegan, paleo, uh, even intermittent fasting. Everything um, is different. And I would say as a whole... For the whole, the entire Parkinson's population, I would say no. And having a balanced diet is great. In some circumstances, when you're when we have more information about the molecular changes that are occurring within the body or somebody with Parkinson's disease, intermittent fasting can be very helpful. But that is done with the purpose of trying to improve the autophagic response of the mitochondria. Yes, that in certain in certain early onset patient, young onset patient, we know we have a signature. Therefore, it's good to trigger. In others, there there is no sense. Makes okay. no sense to go there. So, as usual, the entire concept of diet, also supplements, has to be doing with uh, try to individualize the treatment, and that's, that's awesome. crucial. Yeah. Otherwise, I would say a balanced diet, a more Mediterranean diet is a good one. However, I'm Italian, as you know. And uh, <laughs> in Italy, in my country, we have, still, we have Parkinson's disease. We have dementia. So it's not just the diet. Yeah. Uh, not. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, countries like Italy, Egypt, uh, Lebanon, Spain, everybody would be live 200 yeah. and, uh, and having no problems. And it's not working this way, unfortunately. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, so another thing, um, 
Exercise. We talk a lot about that, and we know that exercise is really important. Um, what would you say is the best type of exercise, and how you know is there a difference between the different types of exercise? What What is your thoughts on that? Absolutely. So that's a fantastic question. So if you tell me, Rodolfo, what is the the single most effective treatment to delay the progression of degen degeneration? Okay. I'm not talking about Parkinson. I'm talking Parkinson and also dementia. ALS is different. It's a different story. So let's okay. not confuse ALS. But Parkinson's dementia will say, yeah, sure, physical exercise, 30 minutes, five times per week of aerobic exercise is the best treatment to try to delay the progression of disease because it improves the cardiovascular health, reduces cardiovascular risk, has a direct, a direct effect on the brain and all the neurons. So, and this is based upon number of, of Animal and animal models and human studies. So, but on the other hand, uh, in uh, young, but the thing that one of the important things is that you have to like what you do. Yes. So, if you don't like what, if I tell you, yeah, Mr. Bryson, why don't you start to, I don't know, to ski? You say, but I, I don't like, I'm just saying, maybe you like to ski, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but I say, ski is, is good for you. I say, what? I don't like that. Yeah, it's very exactly. hard for me to see. So right. it's very important that we are having our patients, everybody doing what they like. It can be Makes running. Sense. It can be playing soccer. It can be, I, I, I'm also a strong proponent, proponent of exercises that improve your core. So uh, kickboxing, boxing, martial arts, grappling, jiu-jitsu, especially mm. judo, those are good because they also have another benefit in the long run. They teach people how to fall. They teach people how to break fall. Okay, yeah, that's and a good point. In the when we get older, when you're gonna be 70, you can sleep on ice, especially if you live in Minnesota, and you can break a bone in yeah. your bed, basically. Okay, right. So, I'll, and I, I break, I broke fall a few times on ice when I was walking on ice because it's a common thing that happens. Uh, but I would say, first of all, things people like. Second, everything that is aerobic make people perspire and work on the core. Why the core or the, or the body? Because allows the perispinal muscles, the muscles that are around the trunk, to be always active. And we need them. We need that to improve our posture. We need them to avoid bad uh, contraction of the back. We need them to reduce the risk of future falling. And, uh, and improve overall our health because they are difficult to train. Uh, this is, to me, the one people should do. But if you say, uh, like my wife, I like to golf, say, go and golf. I mean, um, you know what I mean? Like, you, and maybe, maybe walk instead of ride the cart. Correct. Very good. Rather than going to the cart, jog or walk. But yeah. that's an important thing. Um, and in, another, another interesting issue, what about weightlifting? Am I against that? Not at all, unless it's lighting. But clearly, as you know, maximal weightlifting with large, heavy weights is making us more stiff. Okay. Makes our muscle more stiff. I mean, yeah. That's not necessarily the best treatment that I'm expecting to see. If you do some light, light lift, weightlifting together with everything else, that's a different story. Then it's becoming a balance a very, very balanced exercise. But it's something that we need to implement as a society, not necessarily in Parkinson in general, I would say. Yeah, so that's really cool what, what you said about um, the core strength thing because I've, I've told people also, you know, I think it's important to be strong because, you know, if you have Parkinson's and you're weak, then that's obviously going to make the situation worse. Because if you're stronger in your core muscles, maybe that even helps you not fall. Maybe that helps you. You have the strength to catch yourself and that kind of thing. Not um, Mr. Bryson, but as an, a triathlete, mm -hmm. as an Ironman com competitor, as a mountain biker, how important is for you? Forget about Parkinson. I'm just talking about purely as an athlete. How is it important to have a strong core muscles in order for you to succeed in what you do? Uh, it's super important, especially for mountain biking, uh, because you're just, you, 
you have to, you have to make your body go where you want it to go. And if you don't, if you don't have the strength to do that, then you're going to crash. <laughs> you're going to hit a tree. And, and actually that's one of the things that I have to be careful about too. Just like anybody else is if when you get uh, fatigued and tired, that's when you become more susceptible to, you know, falling and, um, you know, just not, not and making mistakes and things like that. So yeah, core strength is super important. For and those again, things, beyond Parkinson, but especially in Parkinson, I would say. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, I've, there's a lot of people that I've heard say that you know, kind of getting the heart rate up above, you know, let's say uh, 75% of max or somewhere for you know above 50% max is better than just kind of like a, an easy walk. What would you say to that? Well, for sure, walking is good. But okay, no, we are talking about. Sweating more than walk, sweating, perspiring, and sometimes it's not easy to perspire because if you're out, let's say, if you start to run for the first 20 minutes, you will not drop uh, <laughs> because you're used to, because you, you, you're used to run and you're used to train, so it's not that easy sometimes to, ele to elevate yourself at that level. Uh, but clearly, running is not enough, running is a good start, but not enough. We need to really try to increase our heart rate to a point that you start to, I would not say feel the fatigue, but clearly you're working hard. You're yeah. working out. You're not like there just for the ride. Yeah. Otherwise, it would be good, but it's not, no, 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 not at all. Yeah, this is good. I, I think a lot of people who, one of the things I thought about when you were talking is I know some people who like to do certain exercises, but they've kind of gotten away from it as they've gotten further into their Parkinson's journey because they're scared, you know, and running is a good, a good um, example of that. And it's like, uh, I know people who have stopped running because they feared falling. What would you say to somebody who says, well, I love to run, but what if I fall? What would you say to somebody like that? You can fall regardless. Uh, let's start with that. That's a good point. Uh, one thing is, is an interesting observation that many patients, maybe they're listening, can see. There's a, a the largest group of young patients patients is reporting that when they run, they're fine. When they run, they're feeling fine. Mm -hmm. And if you have, for example, tremor or a reduction on the arms wing when you walk, so you swing less when you walk, you, maybe your spouse can, or your significant other, or your friend can see that when you run, this reduction is most, of, in most of the case, is reduced. So people would say, I feel fine when I run. And clearly, I don't feel I can run for that long, but when I run, I feel fine. So clearly, there is always a fear of falling, but there is also a fear of breaking a bone or whatever. Or whatever. Uh, we live in fears. Uh, this is what we are. We are humans. But I would not have my... Uh, if I feel, if I like what I run, what I do, and I like to run, for example, you can jog in a, maybe initially in a much more limited a rather safer environment. I don't know, in the circuit of a gym, where if you fall, you have, you have not had too many obstacles next to you, or maybe on a treadmill. Yeah. And then when once you have the stamina, once you feel more secure, then you can fall, you can run out, re reducing the uh, run outside, um, we reducing the risk of falling. But on the other hand, you may fall regardless. And then, as you say very well, that's a very important point. If you're fired, tired, fatigued, Uh, this is when mistakes occur. Mm -hmm. If you're running short on meds, this is where the mistakes occur. This is where the problems start. Um, it's very unlikely that you hear, and I want to have your experience on that, oh my God, I am falling, uh, but I'm on. Very unlikely. Mm, that's true. Very I mean, I, I don't have balance issues at this point, but um, I can feel when I get weak, uh, especially when I'm mountain biking, that... I can't, I can't move, move my bike or move my body where it needs to go as easily. And that, you know, that's just a recipe. You got to slow down. You got to slow you, down. That's what you got to do. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. You have to listen, you have to listen to your body every day, especially if you have a condition that is impacting your body. Right. But you have to listen yeah. to this very carefully. Yes. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. Exactly. Yeah. No, hundred percent. So, so this is, There's a couple other things I want to ask you just kind of briefly, if you have any opinion on these. Sure. So what do you think about saunas? And do you think a 
someone being in a sauna regularly is good. And what do you think about cold water immersion therapy? Okay. So very good. So sauna, I mean, regularly if you go to a sauna, it's good. Especially in some countries, northern, northern, northern U.S., <laughs> Minnesota, where I'm from, or if, even in some northern European country, sauna is part of the cultural aspect. But clearly everything has to be done in moderation. If you spend two hours in a sauna, it's not going to be good for you as anything. The only problem with sauna we have is one, that you have to be careful. Especially if you're taking medications such as, for example, carbidopa, levodopa, or levodopa in general, you may have lower blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So spending a lot of time in a sauna alone is never a good idea. Okay. Never being in a sauna alone, first of all. That's a rule of thumb that is beyond Parkinson. But especially if you have Parkinson, I would try to make sure that you don't feel completely dehydrated, completely hypotense because you're sweating, perspiring too much. That can be a problem. And if it's a, that can be the, my only concern. Um, that's why I recommend people not to do sauna alone because, you know, if you feel like you have a syncope, you're falling down and you're on the ground there and nobody's around you. That's not good. You likely will die. <laughs> that's, that's the point. But that would be my only concern. But then nothing against that. Again, as long as it's done in moderation. Okay. If you, again, spending two, three hours is not good. Likewise, now it's interesting, there is this huge debate that has been ongoing forever in medicine between if you had, let's say, a muscle sprain, you had to put warm or ice. Nobody knows. Yeah. Trust me, nobody knows. But ice baths are very good for regenerating, for athletes especially, to regenerate uh, uh, the muscles, to get a thermic shock that allows to have a faster recovery after a workout. If you do this for a workout recovery, I think I have no problems um, at all. Um, but uh, remember something. Some patients, not everyone with Parkinson's disease, they also may be more sensitive to changes in temperature because there's a damage in the yes. little nerves that are responsible for thermosensitivity. So having a huge thermic shock can be sometimes more problematic in this group of patients. But again, now and then, as part of the recovery from, let's say, an Ironman competition, makes mm -hmm. sense. Okay. If you do it every day, I'm not sure whether it would be having any benefits. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I did, I had, I guess, um, some questions that the, the group, the, Park, the Parkinson's sure. Fight Club group Wanted to ask you if Please. we could have a couple minutes to see if Please. I could answer a couple of those questions. Um, Please, absolutely. I'm happy to. Some of this we already covered. Um, so one, one person wants to know about taking extra doses of levodopa during exercise and how do you know what intervals to do that in? And because he asked his uh, movement disorder specialist about this and they didn't know anything about it. So what would you say? How, how can someone figure that out? It depends on the exercise, let's, let's say that. The best way to do it is well, more or less what you did. Is that the first time, and you know, you take the medication, you exercise, and see when you start to feel off balance or with some stiffness. Let's say, I don't know, let's say you do a marathon, a marathon. For the first 15 miles, you're fine. Yeah. But then you start not to feel good. That is the time I will I will figure out that interval when you start to feel good and anticipate that. No, so you figure it out when you're training. You have to do. You have to train it. You yeah. will never know otherwise. You have to train it, and you have to train it a few times because it's not. Maybe one day you had a very good day, and those are the great days that everybody wants to have whenever you're training for anything. But those are not the days that count. They count are the bad days, the one then everything. The, the let's talk about marathon or running. The legs are not moving. You feel stiff. Yes. Feel good. Those are the day that counts. Those are the day that make a difference in training. But those are the day that you have to use sometimes to understand when to take the medication. Usually, let's say, again, use a example of marathon because it's intuitive. 50 miles, I start to feel off. I will take it consistently. I will take it around 12 miles. So yeah, I prevent this crash. And I will see again when it's happening. 
So take it but before you need it. Something that we we would never, neither I or anybody would uh, would know that because it's something that you have to you have to you have to train yourself. And I'll just say, in terms of my own experience, that you know I I take my normal baseline medication at, when I'm supposed to take it, even if I'm racing. But I'll take I'll choose some cinnamon tablets at various intervals, uh, just when I think it's. I, I anticipate you have to anticipate that crash, like you said, because if you run out of, if you have an off, if you're off, this too, it's already too late, right? Like it's too you, late. You have to. If you're off, it's too late. It will yeah. take 20, 30, 40 minutes to to for sure go back up. So that's the difficult part. Anticipation is key in this case, but you have to train it. So you will never have surprise. You will never go and say, okay, take my medication and go to the Iron Man. No, you training before knowing when more and what what are you feeling because you know better than me everybody yeah, knows better than your physician i know and patient told me tells me that so that's why i know i know when it is about to come mm-hmm. it can yeah. be a feeling that is difficult to report to your yes physician, yes but you know when is the time mm-hmm. and i'm not talking about Massive changes like all oh, dystonia, this kinesia. No, 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 no. I'm talking. It's a feeling. It's a feeling that patients know, and and you can tell me that if if I'm wrong on that. No, 100. percent And and it takes time because you even you you don't even know your own body that well, and you have to you have to spend a lot of time paying really close attention to it. And, Absolutely. You know, it's just part. Of, it becomes part of the training, I guess, kind of Absolutely. like nutrition. So, awesome. Um, Another question was, uh, this person wanted to know about any new clinical trials or new therapies that are kind of coming down the pike. Excellent. This is a fantastic question. Questions. I love that. The, the entire goal is to do a step back a moment. So, so far, there have been hundreds of trials failing on Parkinson's disease. Even uh, the same, uh, similar, not same, similar approach that has been used in Alzheimer's disease with the infusion of monoclonal antibodies that now has been approved by the FDA for Alzheimer's has been tested in Parkinson and it's been negative. Hmm. Uh, so we have a history of failure. And uh, we, have, we have two options. Either we continue to hit our head, bang our head on the wall, failing, 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 or we try to say, okay, why are we failing? <coughs> The reason why we are failing, we have been failing so far, is that we are doing a very rookie mistake to me. The rookie mistake is we are talking about Parkinson. It's like saying I'm talking about cancer, breast cancer. That That is not the way you should treat the condition. Um, if you ask me, do we have trials? Yes, we have. We will have trials, especially targeted in patients that have specific mutations, genetic mutations, or biochemical abnormalities, means that we have to do an effort to understand the subtypes of the disease. Mm-hmm. Once we have the subtypes of disease, then we can target the people that carry some specific molecular and clinical subtypes. And it's happening right now. So we have a couple of trials coming that are going to be specifically in some patients, not in everyone, but in patients that have some specific characteristics. Guys, it's like breast cancer for real in women. Um, somebody has a breast cancer with mammogram. I take a piece of cancer. I look under the microscope. I know anything about this cancer. I know what treatment works, what treatment doesn't work, and what to expect. We cannot take a piece of brains of our patients. It's been tried in the past. Trust me. Mm-hmm. It didn't really work very well. But not... For the wrong reason, you, you you think because it was damaging. No, no, it was always negative because you had to pick up the part of the brain that has the dysfunction. It's not always clear what you pick. Yeah. But we have surrogate markers that can tell us what's going on and can tell us the subtype, the biochemical, so at, at the biochemical cellular level what's going on, and then we can target that. There are a few... Uh, opportunities in the upcoming months and that are occurring now, again, in patients that have some specific characteristics that are very precise. Um, If you tell me, do you have new development, new drugs for whole Parkinson? 
is not working his way. Okay. It's not, it's, it's, again, it's like cancer. It's like again, think about it. Lung cancer. If I say to somebody, "You have lung cancer," what does it mean? Well, you are a cancer survivor as well. So you know what does it mean? Like nothing. I want to know the subtype. I want to yes. respect. And, and, and this is exactly what we have to do with Parkinson's disease. That's that makes sense. And uh, another thing I want to tell, and I know it's not the topic, but it's related to the topic. We have to do a huge effort here also. Um, again, look at the failures, look at what happens in the future to differentiate, to make sure that we understand the subtypes. And we start with macro differentiation, late onset, early onset, old, quote, quote, young, uh, men, women. Mm-hmm. That's such an important difference that is being constantly overlooked. Mm. Women and men are biologically different, yeah. and that's not to do too much with the hormones. However, we have to talk about hormones there, uh, but it's to do with the chromosomes, or with the presence of chromosome X. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is yeah. the, most incom- that is the most important chromosome that we have. Uh, without chromosome X, we cannot live. We have one, uh, women have two, yeah. and hormones are having a very important relevance secondary to the presence of chromosome X. Uh, if you ask me, what about testosterone? I have no idea. means that we don't have enough knowledge about testosterone yet for Parkinson. What about the role of estrogen and progesterones, the cyclical role that happens in women, the menopausal role, and the perimenopausal role? We have very little knowledge. We have to acquire knowledge to the point that I think that we should have a separated but not segregated, separated approach between men and women. Wow. Because it's completely different, even for trial, even for research. Because that, and even for advocates and advocacy, the problems are different. You cannot get pregnant, I think. <laughs> I, I think, right? No, and you're women right, can, right. and that can, you know, set a easy, a easy, uh, an easy but rather rather difficult situation that we don't have too much knowledge about it. We are growing knowledge of that, but we don't have too much knowledge about it. And and those are major differences that we need to 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 use to think and to adopt in research. Because what would work for you, let's say if I'll give you a drug tomorrow that stops the disease, it may not work to the patient next door, it may not it may not work to somebody with your same characteristics and being a woman. It may not, because we have different biological uh, systems. Right. So that's an important point to make. That is, that's awesome. It's good to hear. So it's actually time for me to take my medicine. <laughs> <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead. Please, please. You know, you should never stop doing that. You know, that you should always take it. You know me. Please go ahead and take it no matter yeah, yeah. what. It's okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, hey, I, I've taken enough of your time for today, oh. but it's this has been great. And um, yeah, I can't thank you enough for coming on and appreciate your time. Well, I would like to thank you to invite me, and I would like to thank you uh, and everybody involved in uh, this community, which is a very special community, uh, especially in a good way. People that have a lot of advocacy, people that are trying to spearhead the field and the society, removing social stigma, and trying to help me and others understanding what's going on. Because to me, it's a learning experience every day. Uh, and sometimes, I don't get me wrong, not often, but sometimes I'm wrong in things that I do, which is fine. Uh, everybody's wrong. But on the other hand, we have to be. Uh, thinking things in a different way. And I think, let me say one thing, though. It is crucial that we are coming together, um, patients, um, mm. experts, alleged experts on the field, uh, legis- legislators, mm. to try to make, to, make to, under- to have people understand that we are not dealing with, a, with the same disease that happens in our great-grandfather or grandfather. And and we had to understand another thing that I, I don't want to be, you know, bringing bad news, but you know that Parkinson's disease is on the rise in terms of frequency yes. of population. And we have to understand why. 
Yeah. Uh, it's not simple. It's all over the world, so just not in some areas. So clearly it's something that we need to face as a society and we need to be coming together and trying to promote and give some particular ability to come up with fundings, come up with research, come up with initiatives devoted solely to young, early men, women, doesn't matter, but by specific groups within the big, the big community, because that can help very quickly uh, advance in science and ultimately help the patients. Well, I think I speak on behalf of all of the the young onset people I know and the the Fight Club group that we're we're here to help and in any way we can. So, um, you know, good. let me know. Let me know if there's anything I can Absolutely. do or anything I can help Absolutely. you in terms of that. But I love how that you said that we all need to come together as patients, as physicians, researchers, and the politicians as well. So that's that's great. Um, 100%. Yeah, so and we need to bring more awareness to it for sure. So I um, hope that hope that we're doing that. Indeed, indeed. So I appreciate so it so much. Thank you. Anytime, anytime. You know, it's a pleasure for real, and I would like to thank everyone that spent some time listening to us. Awesome. Mm-hmm.